The first Peter chapter five gives some information concerning Satan's methods. And just going to verse eight, uh, like I said, we'll, we'll spend more time in the context Lord willing next week, but just looking at verse eight, it says, be sober minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil prowls about around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. <laughs> now this person, I think we would have no difficulty understanding is referring to Satan. And he has two titles ascribed to him here. Uh, looking primarily at the first title this morning, but he's, he's called here <clears throat> uh, your adversary or, or the adversary of yours. Literally what it says <clears throat> is uh, be sober minded and stay awake or alert. Uh, the adversary of yours, devil, like a lion roaring, he walks about seeking someone to devour. We have two titles <clears throat> given to him. Uh, one is adversary. One is devil. <clears throat> And he's referred to in a simile, uh, referred to as one who is like a lion, like a roaring lion. <clears throat> and I consider this perhaps one of the greatest ironies in scripture. The fact that Satan is described as being a roar, like a roaring lion. That's his, his uh, character. And that's his method that he uses to <clears throat> incapacitate uh, those that he is stalking. And that one who goes about like a roaring lion is going to be defeated by the lamb. I just find that ironic, but um, that's not the subject this morning. Um, just just a, an aside, <clears throat> but um, in fact, there's another aside. That one who is the lamb is uh, also uh, the lion of the tribe of Judah. So <laughs> that one who is uh, the lamb is also a lion. He's a bigger lion than this one who's going about uh, roaring, seeking to devour. And that's one of the reasons we don't need to fear because um, the one who we have a position in is greater than the one who is stalking us. We utilize the enablement that God's given us to have to, be, to defeat him. But anyway, we, this, this one who is called the adversary, uh, literally, uh, this is a combination of two Greek words, and this title could be, uh, he could be referred to as the anti, the anti-righteous one. It's uh, anti, uh, the, the Greek preposition anti combined with the Greek word righteous, it's the anti-righteous one. He's against righteousness. He wars against righteousness. And in fact, in this context, uh, he wars uh, violently against righteousness because he is likened to a slanderer who is attempting to devour righteous ones. And uh, there's two two member two types of individuals that I would classify as uh, belonging to his prey. You know, we think of a lion primarily as one who is. Uh, stalking the herd, the, the going after the, the herd of gazelles, and he's, he's not looking for the fastest or the fleetest. He's looking for the, the slow one. He's looking for the lame one. He's looking for the one who is in some way incapacitated that makes him an easier mark. <clears throat> but there's two different types of Christians that um, qualify as an easy mark. And the first one we're looking at primarily this morning 
are ones that we would consider carnal believers. Uh, if we go to Hebrews chapter 12, we have a <clears throat> dissertation here that relates to, pertains to carnal believers. It's written to all believers so that we can recognize what uh, what's happening when we are carnal, when God is chastening us, when we are misbehaving. And most of Hebrews chapter 12 deals with uh, a loving father who is caring for his child who is not behaving the way he or she ought to be. But there's some things given in this context that um, indicate that some of these believers that are being chastened can be as a result of their own uh, sin nature, but it can also be a result of ones who are uh, yielding to this roaring lion who is uh, succumbing to his temptations and yielding to his desire as well. And either one is going to produce a character that is out of harmony with what our father desires for us and allowed to continue and go unchecked why God the father will normally uh, oftentimes step in and intervene and break that chain of unrighteousness with us uh, by disciplining us. But he, if we start off in verse 14 of chapter 12, not looking at the whole context of discipline specifically, <clears throat> that is the context here, but there is a wider, a wider application here. And we're looking at the entirety of, of the, the immediate context, but also a little bit broader application as well here. When he says, in, starting in verse 14, uh, he's gone through the effects of chastening. Uh, when look, going in verse 12, the effects, you let your drooping hands lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. He's talking about the, the results of chastisement is, is, is painful. It's not joyful. And uh, it's, it can be debilitating depending on the severity of the chasing. And I, I get a, a strong picture here when, I, when I'm reading verse 12 through 14 of God's response to Job way back when Job uh, succumbed to satanic attack and Job was, uh, miserable. He was bitter. We're told five times in the book of Job that he was bitter as a result of satanic attack. And that's one of the terms we're focusing here because bitterness is used frequently in relationship to works of the flesh in the New Testament. So we see that this is a, a common method that Satan uses to attack believers that are carnal is uh, through bitterness. And we'll see some of these as we move ahead here. But one of the, the response, the immediate response that God had to Job in chapter 38 when, when the Lord appears to Job in, a, in the whirlwind isn't, oh, you poor guy, I know you've been suffering and I know you've had it really hard. You, you've lost your family, you've lost your wealth, you've lost your prestige in the community, you've, you're, you're sick, uh, you poor guy, uh, here's what's happening to you. You remember what the Lord's response to Job was in chapter 38 when he appears to him? He says, straighten up, young man. I've got some things to demand of you and I want an answer. It, it it's, would seem almost like a kind of a harsh response to us, but we have a righteous God responding to a man, and that's that's how how God approaches. Now he's not being mean to Job, but he's being very straightforward. And I, I, there's something similar here when when God says, you know, when we're being chastened, uh, we can we can get kind of hammered, and God says, don't allow this chastening to have the effect of just. Moping around, you know, the Eeyore complex, 
Oh, things are really bad for me. God doesn't love me anymore. He's hitting me pretty hard and there's no hope. All is lost and I'm just going to cry in my beer, except I shouldn't be drinking beer, especially on, before I teach my Sunday school class. <laughs> but you get, you get the picture here. Uh, the picture here is he's saying, straighten up, young man, when you're being chastened. Uh, don't sit around feeling, moping around, feeling sorry for yourself. Uh, is God's chastening isn't designed to make us feel sorry for ourselves or to go around seeking, seeking sympathy from everybody. The design of chastening is so that we can stand up and result in peaceable fruit of righteousness, that, that we'll just straighten up and be what we're supposed to be. In other words, straighten up, young man, get your act together and strut move ahead. Don't, don't dwell in the past. Don't dwell in the present of how miserable you are right now. Pick up the pieces and get your act together, get your mind where it needs to be and drive on. But then when he gets to, to verse 14, now he's saying what the results of this chastening, what, what the design for the results of chastening is. And he says, uh, and, and there's two potential results when, when we're being chastened by God, because we're, uh, in fact, he says that um, uh, verse 11, the moment for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. This can have two potential results. Uh, one result is that we, what we just looked at and and allowed to go unchecked. This woe is me type of attitude opens the door for other types of unrighteous uh, attitudes that can uh, lead to unrighteous behaviors. And one of which. Uh, he's going to talk about in verse 15 when, when he talks about let it, not letting root of bitterness uh, rise up. And as we've mentioned several times, bitterness is one of Satan's Satan's uh, temptations that he uses. And so this this uh, feeling sorry for ourselves and uh, being uh, allowing the pain of the moment to overcome us, uh, allowed to go unchecked and not changing the way we think or correctly thinking about uh, what we're going through and why we're going through things uh, can allow Satan to have a foothold that will tempt us to become bitter. And God says, don't allow it to progress to that. You need to think about this in a different way. There's a healthy way to look at chastening and there's an unhealthy way to look at it. And the unhealthy way uh, results in uh, Satan getting a foothold, giving him opportunity. It allows for other works of the flesh to take over uh, anger, wrath, malice, and uh we're going to see when we get to Ephesians, we see these are both, um, uh, what's the word I want? Uh, well, I had the word when I was, uh, a little while ago, it's escaped my mind, but it's, it's a place where a staging ground, where a military meets to, to, to uh, get their equipment together and form all their troops together to embark upon a battle. And the works of the flesh are, are oftentimes a staging ground that gives Satan a place to uh, form form an attack from. And so if we if we choose to look at chastening with the wrong attitude and allow uh, the grief and uh, pain of circumstances to overcome us, uh, that can be uh, opportunity for our sin nature to get uh, the better of us, and it can provide a staging ground for Satan to uh, step in and as a roaring lion then, because he sees us as a weak one, one who's been overcome by the works of our flesh, 
uh, use that to further our misery by by uh, hurtling his arrows at us. In the, in this case, uh, allowing bitterness to spring up. So, but there's another another way, another result, possible result from chastening, and that's what he's he's saying here in verse 14. Rather than being bitter, rather than allowing works of the flesh to overwhelm us, rather than um, well, what's what's one of our our favorite favorite sayings is you know when you're uh, mad at your wife, don't kick the dog, or vice versa. You're mad at your dog, don't kick your wife. <laughs> I'm not sure that both are true, but you get the idea. When, when you're upset, God, you're upset because you're miserable. <laughs> you can use that as an opportunity to lash out at other people, or you can choose to think things correctly, reflect upon uh, who you are in Christ, why God is dealing with you the way you are, He is. And you can do what, starting in verse 14, says, strive for peace. Strive for peace with everybody. Uh, maybe the, maybe you're not upset because the dog bit you. Maybe you're upset because you're having a problem with another believer. And there's the temptation to direct anger, works of the flesh. There's the temptation that Satan throws in there to become bitter towards another believer. And God says, don't allow that to, to take root. He says, strive for peace. And this word to strive means to aggressively pursue something. And it's an interesting word because it usually is used in a negative sense. In fact, it's almost always in the Bible used in a negative sense. It's the word that we translate persecute. We think of persecute in a negative way. Somebody's out to get me. And they say it's not paranoia if everybody really is out to get me. And I know they are. You know, you're not paranoid. Persecution is a bad thing. And when they're out to get you, uh, it's, it's a fearful thing because you're the, uh, persecution is an aggressive attack against uh, an individual. And we see the result of persecution in Paul's life frequently. We had Jews who were chasing him all around the countryside for the sake of persecuting. Uh, people who would pursue him for, I want to say hundreds of miles. I, I don't know the, the distances between a lot of these cities, but they would they would follow him around his missionary journeys just for the sake. They hated him so much that they would uh, leave their homes for the purpose of just chasing across the countryside to make his life miserable. That's hard to imagine, that type of hatred. But that's what fueled these individuals. And that was that type. That's what this word means to aggressively pursue something. And it's usually used, like I say, in this negative means. But here it's used in a positive way. He's saying, take that aggressive stance. But directed towards pursuing something that's positive. In this case, demonstrating, um, well, part of the fruit of the spirit, peace. And not just peace with those that... Um, are are you're friendly with the people that are in sympathy with with your plight but pursue peace with perhaps those that may be antagonistic towards you per, because he says pursue peace with all with everyone <clears throat> pursue it aggressively like a hunter would <clears throat> in contrast to that roaring lion like satan who's pursuing us aggressively for the sake of destroying He's using this term, a different term, but a similar idea of pursuing aggressively for the sake of, of bringing harmony rather than wrecking destruction, uh, uh, vengeance, perhaps, or just directing your anger because you're just mad at the world. <clears throat> I've got a lady at work who's just mad at the world, not an employee, but a patient. <clears throat> 
And she's the most miserable person I think I've ever met in my life. And she lashes out at everybody and everything. And she makes everybody around her miserable. And she's just a miserable person. And everybody around her just wants when she lashes out of them, they start lashing. It, it, it spreads like a cancer. Then they start lashing at everybody and everybody pretty soon is miserable around her. And this is this is what this promotes. But God's saying here to this individual who is who's being chastened, says, take that that aggressive stance and direct it towards pursuing that which is in harmony with God's character. Pursue, in this case, in this instance, peace. And then he says, with everyone, and for the holiness, he uses a definite article here. So he's referring to a specific holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now you have to ask, well, which holiness is he referring to here? If he has the holiness, well, I think it's, to me, it's, it's obvious that he's going back up to verse 10. He refers to a holiness. And he says uh, in verse 10, talking about our fathers who disciplined us for a short time, according to their, their pleasure in verse nine, his, they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, talking about God the Father, he says he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness or share um, the holiness that is his. And so this holiness that he's talking about uh, pursuing peace and the holiness is that specific holiness that is unique to God, uh, God's person. And here it's talking specifically about God, the father. Um, and he says that holiness that, that is his holiness. And this kind of contradicts what I think a lot of us sometimes have had the idea of God's chastening. And that's uh, it's usually it's been normally presented uh, by individuals that I have heard teach in years past that uh, this Hebrews 12 is talking about God's uh, sending us to the woodshed, uh, sending us to a room to get our, our act right. But this is really not what he's doing. Uh, he Chastening isn't for the, for the purpose of separating us from God the Father till we get our act right. Chastening is the purpose of drawing us to, closer to him. Holiness is being separated to God. God is holy. His holiness is where demonstrated by the fact that he is separated to himself. And this seems like an awkward statement, but if we understand what it means, it's, it's clear. Uh, God's character is such that he's separated to his own character. In other words, he can't violate his character by acting outside of who he really is. If God is true, he cannot be untrue. If God is righteous, he cannot be unrighteous. See what I'm saying? So this is what, what it means by God cannot deny himself or he's holy. He's separate to himself because he can't function outside the realm of what his character really is. So if he's righteous, he cannot ever act unrighteously because he is holy. And that's his holiness. And that holiness is what he desires us to demonstrate. And chasing is designed not to send us away from him so we can think about things and get right and then come back to him. Holiness is where he comes close to us for, this, for the sake of bringing us close to him. That's what it's designed to do. It's designed to cause us to reflect upon our actions, which are against God, our unrighteous actions. And if our unrighteous actions are corrected and we think correctly, then to pursue that peace, but also pursue holiness, pursue that which draws us close to him, to, that draws us uh, to his character, that causes us to function in harmony with his character. 
And that's why he says here, <clears throat> striving for peace. Peace is part of is part of God's character. It's part of the fruit of the spirit. So striving for peace is striving for that which is in harmony with God's character. He talks about um, verse 11. He says, the moment all discipline seems painful or rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceable fruit of what? Righteousness. Righteousness, that which is a, a demonstration of God's character. God is righteous. So if, it, if chastening produces what it's designed to produce, then it results in fruit that is described as righteous fruits. In other words, this is practical righteousness. It's, it's demonstrations of righteous activity, which is in harmony with God's character because God is righteous. And uh, this character, it, chastening is designed to produce a character that is in harmony with God's righteousness. And so this pursuit is pursuing not just peace towards all people, but also pursuing that holiness which is unique to God. It's not that holiness, that type of holiness that uh, the unsaved world talks about, which is a separation from evil. We hear this uh, presented oftentimes that, that uh, we're supposed to separate from evil. Well, yes, we are, but separating from evil is not holiness because an unsaved person can separate from unrighteousness and do something uh at least by mankind standard, right. In other words, the person who uh, got uh, busted for shoplifting can stop stealing and they can cease that activity. But that because they uh, separated themselves from that unrighteous activity doesn't mean they separated themselves from God. They just don't want to go to jail anymore. So they separate themselves from that activity. But if you've got uh, a circle is 360 degrees and God is God is this direction, you can separate uh, from God 359 degrees. You can, three, you can go 359 different ways away from God and still not participate in that activity that God tells us not to participate in and still not be separated to God. God says to be separated to him, pursue his holiness, that holiness that is unique to him. <clears throat> And then he says, uh, without which, in verse 14, strive for peace, pursue that with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. This is kind of an interesting statement. And there's two different ways it could be looked at that I, I can think of. Uh, I think either one of them would be correct. <clears throat> we have ultimately uh, the statement that's described in, in Ephesians chapter 1 that um, one of the uh, things that we have to look forward to is that we're going to be presented to God the Father as ones who are blameless. This is something of future promise that we as believers have that we look forward to. After the rapture of the church, uh, we uh, were transformed at the rapture. We received the end of our salvation. We are completely saved, glorified spirit, soul, body. We go through the judgment seat of Christ where everything that could be held against us uh, legitimately or illegitimately in a court of law or, or in anybody's mind even that could be imagined against us is burned up. Anything that we have done that is worthless is burned up. And then we are presented to the Father as ones who not just have the potential of being holy, but ones who are actually completely 100% holy and blameless without blame because everything that could be we could be blamed for has been completely burned up. Not even any ash left over. It's just poop. It's, it's gone. 
and were presented to him completely blameless and holy. So it could be uh, referring to that ultimate presentation to the God, but it's also, I, th I think it has a more immediate uh, concern here because he's talking about aspects of God's character. And this word sight is no one will see God. Uh, it's a word that refers to, to a perception more a perception that, that includes a type of an understanding of what, what you're, what you're doing. It's not just a glance at something. It's not just looking at something and, and kind of scratching your head, not knowing what you're looking at, but it's a, it's a look, which, which can include some, an understanding of what, you, what you're looking at. And this uh, understanding it's in the context of demonstrating, drawing close to his holding. So you're demonstrating uh, his character. You're recognizing his character for what it is in, in contrast to what your character has been as an unrighteous person that's worthy of his chastisement. And so you're, you're uh, seeing the Lord perhaps in a different way than you were before you were getting, when you needed to be chastened. Uh, he was someone that you weren't looking at in the same light that now that you're getting chastened and you're, you're, being exercised correctly by that chastening, now you're seeing the Lord in a slightly different light. And it's not just changing your behavior, but it's changing your attitude towards that one that your behavior was against. And so you're seeing the Lord in a different light. And now if, if chastening is having its, its uh, desired results, it's changing our attitude towards that one to which we were acting antagonistically towards God and, and perhaps um, in apathy towards him and his desires will to ones who are now actively desiring to be pleasing to God and demonstrating his character. <clears throat> so uh, either of these aspects would be true in this context, but I think uh, I, I'm leaning more towards what he's specifically talking about here is, is seeing God in light of what his character really is in contrast to my unrighteous character. And I have the opportunity uh, to now correct my behavior and function in harmony with his desire as well. I can see myself in, in light of his character and, and be in harmony with that. <clears throat> then he goes on to say here, when he says, verse 14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. See to it, uh, no one fails. This word see to it is an interesting word because it's the verbal form of the word that is used to describe uh, that individual who we call a bishop or a pastor teacher in the, in the church. Now, the, the pastor teacher, uh, it's uh, episkopos, it's, it's a noun that's used to describe the individual and the office. This is not the noun. He's not saying that everybody needs to be pastor, be a pastor or hold the office of pastor, but it's a, it's a verbal form, which is <clears throat> actually, I think it's a participle, isn't it? Yeah, it's participle. So it's, it's, say, it's talking about an activity. It, it's a, it takes on an active sense. When he's saying, seeing to it that, oh, oh, in other words, you're, you're overseeing uh, something that um, is a potential danger. And now, again, this could be talking about 
you yourself as an individual looking over yourself, I mean, it's talking about, about chastisement. So in the immediate context, it'd be looking at overseeing yourself to make sure that there, there's nothing within yourself because God doesn't chasten me because of, of, of what the group is doing. That's what he did with Israel. When, when a few members or one or a few members of the group were, were messed up, the whole group got, got sent off to Babylon to captivity. Um, when one or two members of the church uh, are messed up. God doesn't chasten the entire church. Uh, he, ch- he chastens the member of that church or members that, that are, are carnal or, or behaving uh, unseemly. And so this is, in, in, initially, this would be talking about uh, overseeing yourself because this chastening is directed at an individual and isn't, I need to be overseeing myself, seeing to it. But he says that no one, he didn't, he says, uh, or as you say, uh, overseeing that um, no one fails to obtain the grace of God. I, I think that this perhaps has a little bit broader scope because of what other, other passages say. Remember when he, uh, Galatians says to um, watch for a brother who is overtaken in a fault and restore such a one. This is, uh, this is t- taking concern for other members of the body and it's not, referring to being a busy body so much as it's talking about being concerned for other members of the body because other members of the body, just like I get chastened, I've been, been slapped around and, and to, you know, God's told me straighten up young man, because you're not behaving correctly. And I've been spanked. Well, I need to recognize that other believers get spanked too sometimes. And so, and I know that when that happens, sometimes that can be incredibly painful. It can be so painful that when, when he says to straighten up the knees that are weak and the, the, the shoulders that are the arms that are hanging down, he says that for a reason, because that chasing can be very severe sometimes. And sometimes it's just all you can do to drag yourself out of bed because you've been been swatted so hard <laughs> and and recognizing other believers might be going through that, too. So looking out for their welfare to, to encourage them to maybe prevent them from going down that same road that you've gone down. Whereas this is kind of uh, taking your eyes off of yourself and the woe is me attitude and recognizing that other believers can be suffering from their problems that they've gotten themselves into. and looking out for their benefits. So this idea of, of the pastor being the only one who is the overseer, uh, he's, he's the, the, the under shepherd. But I think he's indicating here that other believers need to take an, an active participation and looking out for the welfare of other believers too, because we are members one of another. We share in the body. We don't operate independently from each other. So if there's any aspect of the, of the, well, let me back up. We know that uh, it is normal for all believers to function in many, if not all of, all of the spiritual gifts. I may not have the spiritual gift of giving, but I can function within that, the realm of that gift to a, to a certain degree, and God expects me to. I don't have the gift of mercy. I know I don't have the gift of mercy. <clears throat> um, I'm ashamed at how unmerciful I can be at times, <laughs> quite honestly. Uh, I've got kind of a hard, cold heart. Uh, when it comes to to people suffering just within my natural humanity. People think, well, you're a nurse. You must be have a real heart for people. No, no, I don't. I'm kind of a cold, nasty, nasty person. I, I really don't like to think about how I really am. I, I kind of avoid that when the subject comes up. I try like to think about other things. I you know, I like to think about, you know, about uh, 
kitty cats and flowers and stuff rather than I think about how I really am when I am about other people. But I can be merciful and God expects me to be merciful. And so I'm not, my gift is, is different, but I can function in other gifts. And if it's possible for other believers to have the ability to function in a pastoral realm without having the gift of pastor teacher, this is how that would look. In other words, we are to have a concern for other members of the body and, and help look out for their welfare as well. And he uses that in context of saying, see to it or looking over to see that no one fails to obtain this, this word fails to obtain it's, it's similar. Well, it's a word means to, to fall behind. It means to, you've, you've got the, you've got the, the runners in the pack that are all up here and you got the straggler back here. That's, that's the, the straggler is the one that first Peter chapter five is talking about walking about seeking the one he can, can devour. He's looking for that weak one. That's not keeping up with the rest of the pack. And that's the one he's, he's seeking to devour. And, and, and in this context, he's talking about look out for other benefit because not everybody's going to keep up. There's going to be some that lag behind and be alert to their plight because he doesn't say that here, he, although he infers it when he says seeing that no root of bitterness springing up, he's talking about satanic attack there, even though he doesn't address it specifically, but Peter does. And Peter warns us that Satan is looking for those stragglers out there. And he's talking here about individuals who have been chastened to, after, after you're going through this, get your mind off your own plight and start looking out for the welfare of other believers. Because other believers are, are in danger of falling into the same state that you are in and falling behind the grace of God. Now, this, this I think, is, is kind of in harmony, what he says back in Galatians chapter 5. I'm going to come back to Hebrews, but in Galatians chapter 5, he makes this comment that a lot of people stumble over. It's been, I think we have been taught well enough that, that we're not uh, tripped up with this. Uh, in verse 4, he says, in Galatians 5, 4, he says, you... Uh, are uh, rendered idle from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. In other words, if you're trying to live by some legal standard, uh, that, that there's a disconnect between you and, and the grace of God. He says, you have render, rendered idle from Christ. You haven't been separated from Christ. You haven't been severed from Christ, but you've been rendered idle. So in other words, you're, you have been rendered inoperative. Your transmission's in neutral. You, you haven't had your engine pulled and thrown in the, in the junkyard. You still have the engine, but it's, just, it's not going anywhere as far as the grace of God and your position in Christ. You're, you've been rendered idle in Christ. You who would be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. So Paul uses a similar idea here in Galatians that... In, in, in Galatians, he's talking about uh, trying to be justified by law. In Hebrews, he's talking about one who has been chastened because of, of sin. But there's a similarity here because uh, the legalist is trying to justify himself by a legal standard rather than relying upon the righteousness that he has in Christ and allowing Christ's righteousness to umpire in his life. And the person in Hebrews has been functioning in the realm of his flesh one way or the other and has been chastened and now is in in danger of of um 
falling behind in the pack. You know, like, like I mentioned the Eeyore attitude where he's just kind of dragging his tail, tail and rather than, than um, it, it doesn't take time. You know, you know, we talk about a person who has a sports injury. Uh, it takes time for that to heal and for them to be able to get back into the game and function at the level they were before. But the type of injuries we have as believers that he's talked about here don't take months and months to heal. It takes a moment in time for us to change the way we think about something. That's how quickly we can move from being one who's trailing behind in the pack to one who's uh, achieving what we're supposed to be within the body of Christ. In other words, we can think accurately about who we are in Christ or not. And it takes a moment in time for us to make the decision how we're going to think. And Hebrews is talking about looking out for the welfare of those that are, are struggling, perhaps, and moving away, getting tempted by their flesh um, and and falling away from their their position in Christ, not not um, being severed from Christ, but practically moving away from their position in Christ in their mind and failing to function in their position and therefore um, falling behind in essence. It's, it's kind of a metaphor here for, for um, functioning within the, body, within the body of Christ accurately at the, at the right hand of the Father. <clears throat> Back in Hebrews well, he goes on to say then, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Now, here we have this allusion to satanic attack. And again, we don't have it, we don't have Satan mentioned here. We don't have one of his titles mentioned here, but the fact that he's talking about bitterness, he's describing the fact that this individual who has been carnal. Uh, for whatever reason, maybe it's maybe it's their their own sin nature manifest. Maybe they've been yielding to satanic attack. Whatever the reason is, uh, at least a a um, staging ground, as I mentioned earlier, for Satan to uh, operate from to hurdle his his um, attempts here, specifically talking about bitterness. And he says, "See that no bitterness springs up." Well, how do you? prevent bitterness from springing up well you recognize it for what it is and you put on the armor of god he doesn't talk about the armor of god here but he, he talks about it in light of dealing with difficulties of your sin nature dealing with with potential problems with other believers uh, not being at peace with everyone uh, whatever the source um be aware that Satan is continually looking for opportunities to hurdle his lust status. And he says, don't allow this chastening specifically here to be a staging ground for Satan to further attack you. Uh, God has chastened us for the purpose of, of bringing us alongside, allowing us to share in his holiness. And don't allow Satan to bugger that up, <laughs> to throw his monkey wrench into the works. And just when you think you got, got yourself right again, for him to knock you back down again, be alert to the fact that he's looking for an opportunity. And the fact that you have been chastened is an opportunity from him to slap you back down again. Be alert to that. Don't allow that opportunity. Don't allow him that opportunity. Don't allow that to spring back up. 
and says, and many become defiled. So this bitterness doesn't just affect one. It doesn't just affect you. Uh, Satan may attack you with it, but he knows that the type of evil that he, he tempts us with is an evil that spreads. And as I mentioned, this person at work, when she's bitter, uh, and she is a bitter, angry person, uh, and it you can just watch it spread from person to person and person. You, you can watch it happening very, very quickly some days when she's in there, and she's really on a on a firebrand and uh, letting the world know that she's miserable and trying to make everybody else miserable around her. She very quickly does. And she doesn't have to go to everybody, every person to make them all miserable. She only has to go to one person. And that person then goes to another. And pretty soon, uh, if, if you don't nip it in the bud, pretty soon everybody's attitude down. And everybody's going, oh, I just have such a lousy day. What is such a lousy day? Well, it's because you're listening to her and you're listening to, uh, you know, you, you can point it out. But the point is, bitterness spreads. And, and many can become defiled by it. Um <clears throat> going back up something I wanted to mention in verse 10 that I, I forgot to mention back there when it talks about um, his holiness it says in verse 10 they are just they talked about our earthly fathers disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them but he talking about the father act and he's actually referred to as the father of spirits in verse 9 which is a as a uh, interesting title for God the father uh, but it's used of, of the father here and he says the father of spirits uh, disciplines us, that he disciplines us, the Father of Spirits, for our good, that we may share in his holiness. That word share means to, uh, again, it's, it's another combination of two words that refers to uh, taking something or receiving something. That's the word lambano. It means to take or to receive something. And it's coupled with the word meta, which is usually a loose form of the word uh, with. We have two words for the Greek for with. Primarily, we have soon, which refers to our, our close union with someone or something, and meta, which is a looser association. But I believe it was Vine. One of my, my lexicons, and I, I think it was Vine. I hope I'm not wrong when I say that. But he indicated that this word also conveys within itself not just being with, but that it conveys the idea of uh, being with something and focuses on a change that results from that being with. In other words, uh, I'm together, I'm with this person, but there's a change or there's a result from being with this person. Now, that's in relationship to this word anyway. So in other words, to lay hold upon something and focuses upon the fact that there's a change as a result of, of latching hold or taking receiving this, perti this particular thing, being with this. Uh, so he says that he disciplines us for our good so that we may share. We may latch hold and share together with him something that's going to make a change. That change is from carnality to sharing and participating with his holiness. So it's not just something that when he's talking about us sharing his holiness, it's not talking about something that we are doing to, um, to um, produce something that looks like his holiness or that acts like his holiness. He's saying that it's actually something we are actually sharing 
within his holiness. We're allowed to hold upon something that allows us to participate in something that is uniquely his. We actually can share within his holiness. So in verse 15, when he says, see to it that no one fails to obtain or to uh, falls behind in the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble by many become defiled. Then he, then he says that no one is, is sexually immoral, no fornicator or profane like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place to repent, though he sought it with tears. Two things that are stated here. Uh, the first one is talking about no, no fornicator. Uh, this could be referring to actual uh, physical sexual immorality or it could be referring to more metaphorically by somebody who's referring to uh to um heresy using looking at at uh, fornication in a spiritual sense that would be spiritual idolatry but um when it's talking about about esau uh not sure which is actually applied here. I, I tend to think it's referring to to perhaps the the actual physical act that that Esau perhaps had a character of being both both physically, uh, sexually immoral. Um, and if so, I don't know. I don't remember that being taught really in the Old Testament that this might be just new revelation concerning. I don't know if anybody was this conveyed in the Old Testament. Anybody remember this? Yeah. I, the way I understand it. He married two women that came to right. That was that his parents. So he went and got two more women, if I remember correctly, the story. And the implication in the writing of the book of Hebrews says is that compromise with people that are not believers, which is what they're wanting to do. And so he's kind of saying, Well, that's what those that's what Esau did. He married these women, but it was from his. You, you could look at his fornication because he married women that weren't believers. Right, and they were. They, God, the God, for, God forbid them to to intermarry with with these people because of their yeah, their idolatrous. Okay. In this this statement, though, he makes the further statement that um, he was not just immoral because of his um, multiple marriages outside of of. Uh, the of Israel uh, that were idolatrous individuals or, or from idolatrous nations, but he uses this term profane. He's profane, like you saw. My my translation says unholy. It's, it's really not the word unholy, but this word profane, and it's a word which means to cross a threshold. In other words, um, it, it would be like the idea of. Guys, well, I just watched a program last night about about new series about the Lord of the Rings, and in essence, the guy is drawing a line in in the sense and said, "Who's with me? Step over this line." That's not exactly the word that the uses, but you get the the idea. Uh, step over this line, and people will step over. You know, they're they're for me. There's there's this demarcation. It's it's an imaginary line in essence. Um, but in this way, he's using it in negative sense of here's there's this line of demarcation that marks that which is uh, desirable for, to God and that which is undesirable or, um, well, unrighteous. And there's there's a threshold that you go up to the threshold. But once you step over, you've gone too far. 
and Esau went too far. <laughs> and this is the story of Esau is a, is a tragic one in that what it teaches us is that there's some times in a person's life when we step, we take a step too far that we can cause damage to ourselves or to uh, create problems for even for others that can never really be fixed. Um, you know, we, we have relationships that can be damaged to the point that can never be restored, never do end up getting restored to the point that they were before. And we can, we can seek that with tears. We can cause problems to ourselves to where uh, we lose a job and maybe our, our dream job, something we always wanted. And then and we can lose that because of some act of, of uh, impropriety on our part for whatever reason. And no matter how badly we want it back or how much we wish we could make it right, it just can never be made right again. It's not saying that God can never forgive us or that we can never um, have a, a good relationship with somebody again, but it's saying that, that there's times when we can just go too far. And Esau went too far and he sought to get that back. He wanted what he lost. He wanted to get it back and he sought it carefully with tears, he said, but there was no place. He actually uses the word place. My translation says there's no opportunity for repentance. And that's not what it's saying at all. Nothing that he didn't have a chance to. He said he couldn't find a place to do it. No matter what he did, where he went, no, <clears throat> what he did could never make it right again. He'd lost that inheritance and he lost it for good. Okay. And so <clears throat> what he's saying here then is see to it, oversee, look, look out for the fact that some troubles can be corrected and we can drive on, but some things can cause such deep-seated hurt that they may, they may never be fixed in this lifetime. God's capable of restoring anything, but there's, there's some things that just are never going to be fixed. Um, and that, that's well, all I can say about this, but he says that recognize it, no matter how, how, how much we want to, sometimes things just are never going, going to get right with, with a certain circumstance or a certain individual again. And, and that's, by the way, that's what he says back in chapter six, where he says a person Impossible repentance. Thank you. I hadn't thought about that in this slide, but that's true. The, uh, the impossible repentance of Hebrews chapter. In fact, let's, let's look at that. Just, just to remind us what he's saying. I won't dwell on it, but Hebrews chapter 6. It's impossible for them who once tasted that the Lord is gracious to renew them again to repentance. Uh, in verse 4. Hebrews 6, 4. Well, let, let's go to verse 1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary first principles of the doctrine of the Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God and of instruction about washings or baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection from the dead and eternal judgment. This we will do if God permits, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, seeing they are crucifying themselves uh, once again, the son of God to their own shame and holding him up to open contempt. So, yeah, there, there are some things God says are actually impossible. Uh, impossible, not because God couldn't, change things had he determined to, but within the decree, we're talking about 
the plan that God has, has laid out, there are some things God has not made alternate plans for. <laughs> there are some things he has made alternate plans. And there are some things we get ourselves into a mess with some things. And God says, okay, well, I've, I've made allowance for this in the, in the plan. Uh, on, I'll see on, on the next page. See, I've made, made allowance for this. And we, we have this taken care of. And, and we can go drive on. But some things, there's no there's no no instruction on the, on the next page. Some things he just hasn't made allowance for in the decree. And, and it's just, that's something we just have to live with. <clears throat> that's a hard, that's a hard thing. And we're not going to get to Ephesians here. <clears throat> so I'm just going to um, close with this. Um, going to James chapter one, verse 11. James chapter one, verse nine, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade in the midst of his pursuits. <clears throat> Reading this in the light of what he's saying in Hebrews of looking out, looking, looking over uh, the plight of yourself and others that anyone falls behind or falls from the grace of God. We have these two. Peter makes a similar comment in, I think, Peter 2 about uh, the flower, the petals of a flower fading in the sunlight and withering and falling away and losing its beauty. <clears throat> and the person who is uh, functioning outside of their position in Christ, whether it's a result of walking in the flesh and manifesting the flesh or allowing Satan to, uh, that one who's a roaring lion seeking to devour us, we, we succumb to that. Uh, we move from that position of living in the realm of God's beauty, which is described, God's grace is described as beauty, his holiness is described specifically as the, he's called it, his, his holiness is described as being beautiful, the beauty of holiness and falling from the grace of God, falling uh, behind in that uh, is like a flower that fades in the sunlight and falls away. And uh, Paul warns here in Hebrews to beware, to oversee, to make sure that we don't do that and oversee the, the effect that, um, the sin nature and Satan has upon other believers and look out for other believers effect as well. So we see when Satan is mentioned in, in first Peter five as being walking around like, like a roaring lion, he seeks two types of prey. The first type of prey is weakened because they have yielded to their sin nature and they're carnal. And as a result, they have no strength to defend against themselves. That's why, uh, we're going to see it in Ephesians actually twice. Ephesians 6 uh, says that the very first part of putting on the armor of God is being strong in the Lord. But he actually says that uh, before he ever gets to chapter 6. He used, doesn't use the same terminology, but we'll look at this next week. He says in chapter 5, he indicates that we have to be strong in the Lord by putting on the, putting off the old man, putting on the new man. And he uses that just before talking about some of the uh, works of Satan in chapter 5. And so uh, he, he mentions it twice in, in Ephesians chapter 5 and chapter 6, that dealing with satanic attack, we have to be strong in the Lord because we cannot defend against ourselves. 
when he's the roaring lion seeking one to devour, um, he, he indicates that uh, he is looking for that individual who is falling behind in the grace of God, that person who is uh, not putting on the new man. They're not, not mentally uh, living at the right hand of God, but he's living in the realm of the old man, living in the, in the position where his sin nature uh, flourishes. And that is a weak gazelle that he can take advantage of. The carnal believer, though, is not the only individual that Satan stalks. Uh, there are, there's another type of, of weak brother that he stalks, and we'll look at that next week. Um, so, Father, we do thank you that uh, we thank you for our weakness because it's through our weakness we are made strong. Paul actually boasted in his weakness, and we do the same thing, not because uh, we walk around as frail individuals, but because uh, the strength that we demonstrate is a clear indication of, of your power in our life. And we can actually see in Peter that we have power from you and the Son and the Holy Spirit. All, all three of you provide us with, with power for different aspects in our life and can be a demonstration of, of power that goes so far beyond human imagination. And it remains for us to humble ourselves under your mighty hand and yield to that power and allow that to be manifest so that our sin nature doesn't rear its ugly head, but that Satan can have no opportunity to take advantage as well.